Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. 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 Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Heather Forrest could be likened to the Joni Mitchell of storytelling. She started as a folk singer, playing in cafes to performing stories and music all over the world. The journey was not an easy one, but it became apparent, sitting with Heather, that she is a very determined woman, with a master's degree that might go without saying. But still, rivers can run very, very deep. Before gathering information about Heather, I only knew her in passing and obviously knew her body of work. Some of it sits at home on my shelf. The conversation I had with Heather was articulate, fun and passionate. We talked about her very first experience with a large library to trailblazing her own path without the help of others, creating a non-profit organisation to help her work. Heather Forrest was a pioneer of her time. This was another conversation that took place in March at Sharing the Fire, and again I was in a room where workshops were going to be held, so this was also a short conversation. I think I could have gone on chatting with Heather and asking her questions for a much, much longer time. But this is all I have at this point. Please enjoy the conversation with Heather Forrest. Hi, Heather. Thanks very much indeed for being here with me today. Um, I've, I've watched you from afar and admired your work for a very long time. Um, I kind of consider you the Joni Mitchell of, of storytelling in, in some ways. Uh, you have your singing voice is beautiful. Your talking voice is is mellow and soft and and, and and dreamy. It's perfect for storytelling because it just draws you in and takes you away, which I really really like. And um, I appreciate you being part of this this uh, podcast of mine. Um, you're a Jersey girl. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> and you got a BA, and then an MA. And you received a, a doctorate from Antioch. And you were also an adjunct professor of oral traditions at the Southern Connecticut State University. You're one of those peoples that helped start the movement of, of the rebirth of storytelling. Um, the renaissance of storytelling in the 70s. But your journey, if, if, if I've read right, began as a folk singer. Is that right? Well, that's true. I was about 14 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm 70 now, so going back to the age of 14 is a little bit of a journey. <laughs> but I remember hearing a lovely lilting sound coming through the trees in a park. And I followed the sound. And it was a boy playing an instrument that I hadn't seen. I had not seen it. I was, this was 1962. So I I said, what is that? And he said, it's a guitar, you fool. And I said, wow, I, I wish I had one of those. And I listened. I worked an entire summer to earn enough money, $25 as a, at that time was quite a bit, to buy a harmony guitar, which I taught myself how to play using little box pictures of chords and friends up and down the street. It, it was a a time when folk music was on the radio. And so I'd listened to the early days of the folk music revival, but I never had, I really had never seen a guitar. Wow. And it was uh, an instant attraction. And it's an instrument that I still play. For the first t 
10 years of having a guitar, I never went past the first three frets. Really? I, I didn't want to use it up. Is that how you thought about it? Uh-huh. I was exploring, and I never stopped finding wonderful sounds. And I don't read music. I play by ear. I'm a folk musician. Uh, I, I play by... Um, chords that I've made up. I just have to remember the positions. And, and as I get older, since I don't really, I know the sound I'm trying to make and I know what it should look like, but I don't know what it's named. And uh, I've been wondering how to preserve my cording. Uh, perhaps I should film my fingers, I don't know. But uh, I, I bought this guitar and I learned the songs that were on the radio that were playing at the time. It was the beginning of the uh, the singer-songwriter era. So we had uh, Pete Seeger playing songs we had, on the radio. There were um, artists like Joan Baez and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And then Bob Dylan and yeah. the, the protest singer-songwriters who uh, changed the traditional folk music into more personalized renditions of folk music, which to me always seemed narrative. The, these yeah, old yeah. tunes that I played uh, were story songs. Right. They are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's that. And, and so that, 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 that led you into telling the folk tales? Well, I'd always loved reading folk tales. Mm -hmm. It was a personal passion as a child. I discovered the 398.2 section of my local library and never left. Yeah. And uh, I was an avid reader, but that was the kind of literature that attracted me. And all the way into my young adult years, so that when I was in college, I still had a storybook next to my bed. But at a certain point, it was Paul Reps's book, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, okay. reading, or Indriya right. Shah, uh, The Tales of Mullah Nasruddin. So the stories were always coming, but they became more sophisticated and m more into the into the, uh, the realm of the teaching tale and the wisdom tale and the metaphorical story that people saved over time because they had useful common sense information. Right, yeah. And I was attracted to those kinds of stories. So that was a side, that was a, before you fall asleep at night, it helps nice dreams come. Yeah. So I always did that. Well, at a certain point of learning what was the canon of the day, popular folk music, right. I realized that I really didn't have a lot of personal connection to some of the stories I was singing. And what do I know about the Spring Hill mining disaster? I've never been uh, in a mine. And yes, I'm sure there's blood on the coal and the miners lie in roads that never seen sun nor sky. But I didn't know what that really meant. And I realized that it was important to say what I was singing. So I right, okay. understood the story I was telling. And it occurred to me one day that uh, maybe I could make up my own song because there were, there were so many people now doing that. Uh, so Joni Mitchell. Jo yeah, there were lots of examples of folk singing artists who were making their own songs that weren't bebop and they they weren't motown they were they were protest songs and love songs that sounded more like the child ballads that i'd sung as a as a child mm -hmm. myself yeah. um not that child ballads yes. were for children yes, yes. Some, <laughs> right. some of it very not not for children <laughs> right but those songs uh were important to me because I, I, I was attracted to the to the stories of them, but the more contemporary folk songs. I had a fat book, almost two inches thick, of folk songs, m m many of which I never, ever learned. But mm. I would go through them and learn them, and I would just love them because they were 
little treasures I held in my heart, and mm. and I could amuse myself no matter where I happened to be, under a tree, in my room. I could just play a song, and my favorite moment would be to sing the whole song and get all the way to the last words, last moments sound. And it was like I had gone to another world and come out another door. Yeah. I loved that last lingering moment. Yeah. And sometimes I would sing a song just to get there. So you'd sing, you'd, you'd make the journey to get to the end. Absolutely. Yeah. To come out the other side. Um, I later learned that it, there's a word for that. And people who study anthropology and ritual, that's liminal space. That's that you step into a sacred space that's other than your ordinary world and must come out the other side new or renewed. So that's why it occurred to me that I wasn't enjoying some of the images. Okay. And I wanted to make my own, but from what raw cloth, from, from what raw material. And one day it occurred to me that I could take one of those... Zen stories I had just read and make that into a folk song. Do you remember the first yes. story that you did that way? Yes, it was uh, a story of, about a monk uh, who's on top of a mountain and enjoying the moon, meditating. And it's a song with poetry and music, but I'll just tell you what happened in the, in the little tale. Up the mountain came a thief bent on stealing what he could. And when he arrived at the hut with the little man staring at the moon, he said, give me all you own. And the man replied, all I own are the clothes that I own. But I'd be happy to share the night sky with you. Sit beside me and enjoy the moon. I don't want the moon. Give me all you own. I'll take my clothes. Dear bandit, you've climbed too far to leave my hut empty-handed. And so the thief took his clothes and went down the mountain step by stone by step by stone. And then the little naked man was sitting there meditating, looking at the moon, thinking about the thief walking down the mountain, carrying my clothes down. What a poor man. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. That story, I thought, would make a good song. <laughs> and it did. Uh, it's called Little Man, and uh, or Giving the Moon. And I have a recording of it. It's, it's also in line with what was going on in my day because we were all going back to basics and we were all trying to see what true value in life might be when we were out. This was at the beginnings of the war in Vietnam and and, uh, people were thinking differently about possessions Mm -hmm. and what do we really own. And I came to the conclusion that the one thing that I do truly own is my time. And once I spend my time, I can't spend it again. Right. So hopefully I spend it well. And when you spend time talking to someone else, it's time well spent. It's a yeah. gift. It it's a, a gift. gift. It really is. I totally believe that. Yeah. 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 Or even listening to someone. It's, yeah. It's a great gift to the one. So thank you for wanting to hear me talk to you. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> that, that, yeah, some of those Zen stories are, I mean, most of those Zen stories, if not all of those Zen stories, are really, really good. I mean, like a lot of the Sufi stories as well. They, yeah. I mean, when I say that, I guess I should say, most of them resonate with me. Um, some of them don't, but most of them do. Um, really like those stories. Now, if, if I get, again, if I got this right, your mother was a nurse, I believe, and your father was a teacher. Do you, um, what was your child like? What was your childhood like growing up? Or should I ask? You can say I don't want to answer that question if you don't want to. It's fine. 
It's a long and complicated story because I was raised by my father's twin sister from the time I was 10 days old until I was six when I returned to my parents' home. And then I stayed with them for the rest of my life till I launched myself into the world as an independent person. There were no stories told in the house that I can recall other than the stories of holidays, which were very important. Um, in a Jewish household, ceremonial holidays always revolved around a story. And I knew all the stories of all the holidays. And um, although we were not extremely observant mm -hmm. Jews, we had a, uh, a strong ethnic heritage. My parents were raised by Orthodox parents who had immigrated to the United States. And they brought... From where? From Eastern Europe. Okay. So I'm, all of my, my family heritage is from that part of the world. And so that kind of comes with the package. Everybody, you know, we, because of the meanderings and the wanderings of people, very often... Uh, ceremonial times would not be in a synagogue. It would be at the kitchen table or the dining room table. Mm -hmm. So there's the Rosh Hashanah dinner, and of course they'd be around challah because you're celebrating the circle of the year with apples dipped in honey so that it might be sweet. And then 10 days later, you're at the table again to break fast for Yom Kippur. And throughout the year, each holiday would have many table ceremonies. And historically, that might have been explained by the fact that sometimes people of the Jewish faith had to do it secretly, and the house became your synagogue. Right. And so I uh, knew all of those stories. And of course, my mother would, would make sure that I knew how to light the Sabbath candles, mm -hmm. because she said, you, you'll be the woman of your house. And it's the job of the mother to kindle the light of faith in her children. So that's why the mother lights the Sabbath candles. Now, I don't light Sabbath candles anymore, but my, my candles are my stories. And so I have raised my children on stories, and both of them turned into storytellers in different mediums. My son is a master photographer, and my daughter is a poet. They were fed stories as nourishment from the time they were tiny tots. That's that's cool. I like that. Um, what was the, so you grew up with these Jewish stories. You didn't. You weren't um, exposed to other stories. And it sounds that your your if you hadn't seen a guitar until you were fourteen years of age, you must have had a somewhat sheltered youth. Or protected youth. I, I I didn't see instruments. Okay. There weren't instruments around, mm -hmm. and it sounds startling, but it's true. I looked at the thing that was making the sound come through the trees, and I couldn't. I just I was smitten. It was love at first sight. Right. I think you know when you said that when you first said that you'd never seen a guitar before at the age of fourteen, you know. I, my first reaction was like, why? And, and it, it, you know, it, we have so much stuff these days everywhere, and it's on the TV, it's, you know, it's on the internet and everything. So it's like, of course, everybody knows what one of those is, but, you know, back in those days, you know, if you didn't own a television, why would you know what a guitar looks like? Unless you've seen one already, or had musicians in the family. So this, well, it's really interesting that, you know, our society has changed... Oh, so much. The amount of stuff yes. <laughs> that we have and that we see and that we long for mm -hmm. far exceeds anything that anyone could have imagined yeah. at another time. Right. Uh, yeah, I look I, at some I, of the kids, you know, that I know, my kids, other people's kids, and the amount of stuff that they have. 
would have been enough for all of the kids on my street hmm. right, growing up. You know, so much stuff. You know, my toy cupboard was like a little tiny cupboard. Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, sometimes people who are poor don't know that they are. Yeah, right, right. I totally but my, when I, we would talk about, well, what kind of toys did you have when you were a child? I, I had a toy. It was summer vacation. It was a round pink ball. I didn't go to camp or do anything like that. Yeah. But I had a I had a ball. And if you had a pink ball, a high bouncer. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. There are so many games that you can play. Yeah. A, my name is Russia. There's a, a, a scoop, a stoop game that you play with bounces and catches. I sort of remember those. On the street, we played a game called Skullsy that uh, you would, with a bottle cap that you would use your finger to flick down across the asphalt, and it was kind of like baseball. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, there were hopscotch games. I grew up, you know, in a tiny amount of time of going from 1948 to now. So much has, has changed for what the experience of a child might be. Right, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I think relative to the exposure that young people have now to the world at large, I must have been very uh, insulated from the larger world. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of things, and I didn't right. know a lot of things. Yeah. But I did know a few things. I liked, I liked superhero comic books. Oh, you did? I absolutely did. And um, there was a, a luncheonette when I was in elementary school, that my mother would give me a quarter. The bus was 14 cents to go downtown in those days. So a quarter, you could go to the luncheonette. Instead of coming home for lunch uh, and walking home from school, I would go to the luncheonette once a week with that quarter. Now with a quarter, you could buy a little hamburger and a glass of milk, which was what I would normally have at that counter as I sat on those stools that could yeah. go round and round with a leather top. Yeah. It was a perfectly uh, a vintage uh, luncheonette, behind which was a magazine rack that had all the new comic books as they came, the Delk Superman comic books. And they were 10 cents, but I only had a quarter. Mm. So with a quarter, you could buy a bowl of pea soup, which I hated and a glass of milk. But you'd have 10 cents left over to buy a comic book. So I suffered through pea soup to build a collection of Superman comic books, and I treasured them. I had the one where Superboy came and landed, I, Supergirl, Crypto. I mean, I had the whole early collection of Dell, and my mother and father were horrified that I would read such junk and they made a rule they said you can't read this junk unless you go to the library and take out one extra book every week oh nice and I agreed because uh -huh. I certainly wasn't going to give up my superheroes who could fly and have they had superpowers and I loved it well I went to the library I lived in Newark and um I, I'm trying to remember how old I must have been at that time. Probably maybe third, maybe fourth grade. Okay. Could be around fourth grade because I was a pretty good reader at that time. Uh, and I went to the library in the neighborhood we had most recently moved to. So it was a new library. And I, I didn't quite know my way around it and hadn't been to it uh, a lot. And, and I walked in the front door. I remember the smell of that library. Mm -hmm. It was filled with wooden shelves and it smelled like paste wax and it had yeah. kind of that book smell of old libraries and I walked in and it was bigger than the one in my old neighborhood and I was a little bit overwhelmed at the concept of having to pick out a book so I went to the librarian's desk and I said excuse me but can you tell me where I might find a good book and she said they're all good, dear. <laughs> of course she did. 
which didn't help my problem. But you know, being a Virgo, I am extremely organized, and I probably could have been a good clerk if, if I didn't turn into a storyteller. But I decided that if they're all good, then it really didn't matter where I started. So I walked back to the door, and I turned around, and I faced this cavernous quantity of books and decided to begin at the beginning. Mm. So I turned left to the very first stack of books which reached all the way to the wall. And I walked all the way to the wall and I went to the very, very top shelf to the very first book on the top shelf and I took it out and I went and checked it out. I was starting at the beginning. And I brought it home and I loved the book. It was filled with characters who could fly and had superpowers and there weren't any pictures but that didn't matter because the stories were so good I could see the pictures and my mother saw me reading she said what's the story about I said I don't know I can't it's, it's this D guy with the grapes I can't pronounce the the names but they're just like the comic books they're wonderful and the next week I, w I came back and I I took the second book off of the shelf and came, and I did this for a few weeks, and the librarian saw me come in and go to, the, and she came over to me, she said, young lady, do you realize there's more library than the part that you're visiting every week? Why are you going? I said, well, I'm starting at the beginning, and I really like these books here, and I was reading my way through the, the Greek mythology section. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, wow. and she said, well, if you like those books, you might like these. And she drew me deeper into the cavern of the library and brought me over to 398.2, which is the folk and fairy tale section, right. where I've never left. Um, I do visit the mythology section, which is, and I re read my way through the Norse myths, and I really enjoyed those stories. It became my hobby uh, really? to, to read the Greek myths. I had I, I knew all the Roman names and the Greek myths uh, names, and I, to keep it all straight, by the time we got to it in in school, I was an expert at this stuff, um, and never really knew that I'd have some use for it in my life, other than the fact that I like the pictures in my mind at that point. Right, right. I love the fact that you love comics. Do you still like comics? Do you? No, I don't read graphic novels or anything like that. And ironically, uh, storytelling doesn't need illustration, really. No, right. However, I have uh, bumped into the problem of illustration in that I write children's books as well. Right. And when a, a storyteller's words become literature and they're on the page, and they're illustrated, then a child who looks at the book sees one person's imagination. The yes. illustrator has created a, a palette of pictures <clears throat> for the story instead of listening to yeah. the oral tale and making their own images. So I always have to remind young people who are talking to me about my books, well, I'm the re it says retold by Heather Forrest. That means the tale is old and I've told it again in new words. So this is my version of the folktale that you see in print. But this is also one person's version of what the pictures might look like. So when you that's look really, at it... That's yeah. a really interesting thought. Yeah, I never really looked at it like that before. Right. I actually, um, I worked in the library for a while, uh, about five years. And um, there were these kids that read the Harry Potter books, but they never went to see the Harry Potter movies when all of their friends did. And I was like, well, why would you, why would you do that? And they were like, because I like my Harry Potter. Right. And if I see the movie, I will never see my Harry Potter again. That's exactly true. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, when you, when you ask kids to draw Snow White, you know the kids that have seen the movie because they draw that Disney version of Snow White. The kids that haven't seen the, the Disney movie, it'll be something completely different. Well, they haven't heard You're Disney's right. version yeah. of yeah. the story either. Yeah. Well, the author has to be very specific. There, in, in one of my 
favorite books, The Woman Who Flummoxed the Fairies. I um, was shocked when I saw the illustrator that I work with is actually my best friend, Susan Gaber. So we're, we That's work nice. together and have collaborated in many ways. And when I saw the picture for the, the little fairy king sit, seated on a golden throne, I, I was shocked and I said, Susan, it looks like a, a golden easy chair. <laughs> Why did you put him on a plush? That's not a throne. I said he was seated on a golden throne. And she said, well, did you say it was a golden metal throne? I said, well, no, I didn't. She said, well, in that case, that easy chair is fair game. You're in charge of the words. I'm in charge of the pictures. Wow. And, you know, if you want to see something in particular, you have to say it. Yeah, and there are other illustrators that I, I look at their work and I'm like, wow, did they even read the story? Or did they just read the synopsis of the story? Most modern publishers don't let the illustrator and the author talk to each other. Right, right. I they would that. much prefer to make the match themselves and near the twain shall meet because it can change the work. Um, in there's another book I did with Susan called based on the little red hen and it's a marvelous rendition of the story and the way that she did it many co many other versions show the characters who don't help the little red hen to be lazy and maybe there's one with a, uh, a bunch of kind of hobos that they're listless and right. taking advantage of her and they're they're just and in my words were there once was a little red hen or a little red hen lived in a house with a lazy dog a cat and a mouse and i used the word lazy because i'd seen so many images in my mind i gave a judgmental word which susan objected to she said i don't like that word if you could change just one word in the whole story i could paint the pictures that I see and it's the word lazy I said well why and she said because that's not why they're not helping the hen in my imagination the dog the cat and the mouse in the tail is not helping the hen because they're too busy playing they're young and they're busy with their own endeavors and that's why they're not helping uh, and it, so you just need to change that word. It suggests an older, more premeditated character and more negative, and I just want them to be playful. And I thought about it and struggled with it. What word could I use that would let her paint a puppy and a kitten and a little mouse who likes to read books? And I finally came up with the perfect word, and that one word allowed her the images that she painted and the text turned into a little red hen lived in a house with a frisky dog a cat and a mouse nice and it gave her permission to paint the wonderful paintings that she made of a kitten and a puppy and a little mouse that is very busy reading a book about mice right <laughs> yeah they're too busy to help I'm gonna have to find that book <laughs> That's really cool. Um, did you mix with the folk crowd when you were a folk musician? Did you mingle with them? Or? N no, I, I was, well, did I mingle? I practiced my craft at the local coffee houses, mm -hmm. and uh, I must say that this new inspiration that I had to, um, <laughs> to, to take old Zen and Sufi stories and spiritual tales from around the world and turn them into folk songs was a major failure at the pub. Oh, wow. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, just because somebody makes something doesn't necessarily yeah. mean they know how to perform it. There's a difference between uh, compositional quality and performance quality. Um, okay. I, I, I made some good compositions, but I didn't know how to convince my audience to listen to them, especially in that in the coffee house or in the pub bar, in I'm sure it's different on one side of the ocean or the other, but in in an American bar in Omaha, where I was one summer, uh, it's since burned down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I remember getting up there and playing, um, it was a little a cappella uh, Zen story. And uh, I got booed, and somebody would play some Grateful Dead. Oh, and, you know, or they were calling out pop songs that I didn't know. And I thought, well, one of, one of the important skills of being a storyteller is to match your story well to the audience at hand. Mm. And that was a hard lesson uh, to get booed. Was, was I daunted? Nope. <laughs> it just took years to figure out that maybe a bar wasn't the best place or a coffee house wasn't the best place in those days to be background music if what you were yeah, doing yeah. was telling a story that required everybody to listen mm. from beginning to end. People would laugh and, hey, what happened? You know, and they weren't listening because they were having conversation. So storytelling is not background music, and that's when I moved into a theatrical setting, uh, which would be some kind of a setting where people were intentionally sitting there facing the storyteller with an intention to listen from beginning to end, which, of course, is... I, I love that too. I like the whole journey. Yeah. Uh, I want to take people on a whole journey, not just pop in in the middle and and then not know how you got there. Yeah. So uh, I I stopped playing in the as background music in a restaurant or pub or the coffee house. Um, sometimes set up a time. Okay, well you're on and you have a set. And there was the beginning of a proscenium orientation for folk music at that point. It wasn't just music in the background. And that's where the storytelling made sense too. So it moved from from being uh, inappropriate in a certain setting to finding better settings. How long did it take you to find the better setting? Several years. Yeah. Several years. But my <laughs> my was dad... That, was that a hard learning curve for you? Or just challenging? It was just... It was at a time where there, there weren't storytelling festivals, there weren't mm. storytelling groups. I didn't know any other storytellers. In 1974, I started uh, a not-for-profit arts organization as an umbrella for my work so I could apply for grants and find places. I, I had to um, convince people. I went to schools to, to try to convince schools that this might be a, um, a valuable educational tool. Through the arts, you can learn so much. And uh, I truly believe that, that listening is the bedrock of learning to read and to write and to speak. Mm -hmm. And so listening to stories is a, a, a powerful tool for literacy. And it took a while before I found that the world and I kind of coalesced and uh, whole language was a big uh, item for a while. And some of the philosophical approaches to education shifted so that the arts and storytelling at a certain point in the 80s, especially the early 90s, that it was a time when I found many venues. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah Who was the first storyteller that you met? The first storyteller that I met? Well, I uh, actually, I was at a, um, a coffee house in Connecticut uh, doing a benefit for United Citizens Against Nukes. <laughs> and somebody came up to me and said, well, you're a fine storyteller. You ought to go to the National Storytelling Festival. And I said, there's such a thing? And she said, yes. Uh, and she told me about it. And I went home and found out all about it and put myself in my car. And I went to the very next one. I camped out. And that was in 19... 79 maybe yeah and I was amazed because I saw people doing wonderful things but I also saw something very surprising to me I would know a story plot and I'd work on it I'd create poetry and text and melody mm -hmm. and I'd craft it until I had made a work 
out of it, an art piece out of it that I could then perform. And it was only at the very beginning stages of the process that I could sort of chat the story. And I sat there watching all kinds of people just talk <laughs> the story. Right. And my repertoire quadrupled because I, I look and I said, well, I know a lot of stories I could tell like that. You know, I put too much work into this. <laughs> That's what Bill's saying on Saturday. It's work. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I went home and I made a little cassette tape. We had cassette tapes. Yeah. And I mailed it with a letter of thank you to the national, at that time it was called NAPS, the National Association for the Perpetuation and Preservation of Storytelling. And um, I sent a thank you note for having such a thing. I said, I, I feel like I have found my family. Thank you so much for being there. And here's, here's what I do. And I sent some of my pieces on a cassette. And I got a telephone call. Uh, about a month later from the secretary who had opened the envelope and had listened and invited me to be in the next year's festival. Well, she had absolutely no artistic authority to do that. But this is the South and politeness rules. So um, Connie and Barbara, the folktellers who were artistic directors at that time, couldn't undo what the secretary had done. And so I was invited, and um, I think her name was Martha, as I recall. Is this Connie Reagan Blake? Connie Reagan Blake and Barbara Freeman were the folk tellers at that time, okay. and they were a duet, and they were choosing uh, artists, and and the <laughs> the secretary who had called me said, you know, that we're trying, they were beating the bushes to try to find new storytellers, new voices. Mm -hmm. At that time, it wasn't like it is now and where everywhere there's a storyteller. So when they came, when Martha came to pick me up at the airport, uh, she basically said a very short, curse, terse sentence to me. It was, Heather, you better be good. <laughs> <laughs> because she had really overstepped her bounds uh, but as it turned, uh, I was very well received, even though I was telling stories unlike anybody else at that time. Because you were doing it with the guitar. I was doing it with the guitar. I was doing it with movement. I was doing it with poetry. Uh, I was um, crafting stories that people knew, but telling them in new ways. And it wasn't the style of the jacktails on the front porch that was very popular. And many years later, <laughs> at the time there were those that said, oh, that's not storytelling. Uh, but many years later, or the, actually the following year, at the swapping ground, there was somebody playing the guitar and telling a story. So I you kind of- started a movement. I did, I guess, uh, or gave permission to right. experiment. Yeah. And now, ironically, I'm a very traditional storyteller, or considered so, not an avant-garde teller, which I was in 1980. Uh, now anything goes, and uh, there's a lot of experimentation. But I was considered very unusual in those days. That's funny. That's, I mean, it's a great story, too. Do you think, is there a storyteller that's influenced you? Or do you think musicians have more influenced you than, than storytellers? The stories have influenced me. Okay. Because the stories have been my guides and my teachers. And I consider myself a curator of okay. tales. Almost like a gallerist would collect a wonderful collection of, of art and, and know everything about each one to be able to excitedly share this one and that one and this one and look at this. So I collect stories that I, I feel are treasures that I want to carry. So I'm a, you know, before I tell stories ever, I always have my own way of centering myself and quieting myself to be able to tell a story in public. And it's usually a, a, a hope. I close my eyes, I take a breath, and, and wish to be a good vessel for this story. Because yeah. that's what I am. Uh, 
a tale bearer carries the stories and there's a responsibility to put the stories in proper places for the proper yes. reason and uh, the stories teach a lot about how to be told so I, I, I choose how to serve the story best some feel like well this story should be for children or this story is one that I'll just tell myself right. I have a lot of stories that I don't tell anybody but me because they are stories that help me personally in times of stress yeah I, yeah they're not what I mean, I would tell you I mean I I mean I don't they're not my performance pieces right, 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 yeah. they're pieces are we and we all have those stories. Sometimes those stories are stories from our own lives, stories that okay. have taught us something. Well, I won't do that again. Yes. <laughs> you know. With all of a, a small basket of those. <laughs> right, right. But I have, I have what I call kind of Band-Aid stories. When I'm wincing or hurting, I have to go back and tell myself that story over and over again. I have, uh, I, I do have one that, that jumps to mind that has become a, a story that um, I tell a lot because I, I think it's, it's useful. But it was also a story that my children knew and I could see the impact of how a child hears a story and that it informs their life as well. Right, yeah. Um, there's a, a tale that my kids have grown up with that is narrowed down to, I don't know if it's good, I don't know if it's bad, as just the phrase. Right. But it's the, that yeah. old Han tale about a farmer's horse ran off yeah. and try as he might, he couldn't catch him. Yeah. His neighbor, seeing this, rushed to the farmer's side and said, oh, how bad for you, now you've no horse to haul your wood. And the farmer looked at the dust in the distance and said, I don't know if it's bad or if it's good. The next day, as you know, the horse came back with a mate. And when the neighbor saw two horses in the farmer's stall, he said, oh, how good for you. You must be glad. The farmer looked at the two horses in the stall and said, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. The next day, the farmer's son decided to train and tame the new wild mare, but the horse threw the boy and stepped on his leg and crushed it. The farmer saw what happened and ran out to the field, and as he was lifting his broken child, the neighbor saw and came to his side and said, Oh, how bad for you. Your sorrow is understood. And once again, the farmer said as he lifted his injured child, I don't know if it's bad or if it's good. Well, in time, the country went to war, and all the able-bodied youths were conscripted, all except the farmer's crippled son. The farmer his son and the neighbor stood alongside the road and they watched as row upon row upon row of able-bodied youths marched off to the battlefield and the neighbor, he waved goodbye to his two sons. And when they had disappeared over the edge of the hill and he could see them no more, he turned to the farmer and he said, say it, you, your son is home. You must be glad. And once again, the farmer said, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. This is a story without an end. Take from it what you will, my friend. One day, we were sitting around the kitchen table and my husband was regaling my son and his friends with his exploits during the protests of the war in Vietnam and how all of his friends were burning their draft cards because they did not want to go and fight a war that they didn't support. And my son piped up and, and said, 
well, if I was there, I would have burned my draft card. I wouldn't go fight a war that I didn't believe in. And I turned to Lucas and I said, Lucas, you would never have to have fought that war. And he said, well, why not? I said, because you, you, you couldn't be drafted. And he said, no. I said, no, you, 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 you would have been exempt. You have diabetes. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. Wow. <laughs> so they've really taken the stories in. I think that we feed our children by what they see yeah. and what they hear of us. Yeah. And from yes, us. oh, I totally agree with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, our children are mirrors of ourselves in in a, in a certain form, in their own form. Mm -hmm. For all the good bits and all the bad bits, it's our fault <laughs> to a certain degree. What what's your what's the favourite part of your job? What lights up your eyes? What lights up my eyes mm -hmm. is when I'm making something new. <clears throat> so it's the creation. Oh sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. The creation is, is the most fun, mm -hmm. and uh, the having it, I feel like I'm rich with stories. I don't, I've never needed a lot of stuff if I have stories. Yeah. That's fun. Oh, what's the most important part of, um, what's the most important thing to you about performing stories? The most important thing for me is staying present. That's how, that's my inner criteria about whether I've done a good job. Because if I know what I'm trying to do, then the response afterwards, I can say thank you or... But if I, if I have no... If you don't know where you're going, how do you know if you got there? Yeah, that's a true statement. So I, I have some rules for myself, and one of those rules is to stay present. And that's where stage presence comes from. Yeah. Uh, the word is embedded in the in the concept, and I feel very successful if I've stayed with that story. No drifting mind moments. I've really been there and stayed with my audience and stayed with the story as it unfolds, moment by moment. Kind of being in the now. It's a very Zen approach, and if I've done that, I feel very good when I get to the end, and I'm also certainly pleased if the audience responds well, uh, well of course. because it's a it's an it's an exchange and um, there's a, a such a, a profound connection more in the moments of silence than anything else when the room gets so quiet that I could hear a breath I feel wonderful it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing what was the most unexpected um, gig that you've ever done? Unexpected? Yeah. Something that fell into your lap that <clears throat> you wouldn't ever have thought would come to you. Well, unusual. Unusual. Broaden the scope. <laughs> well, the most rewarding. Hmm. That's such a good question, and so many moments come to mind. Uh, unusual spaces. I, okay. I, I was fascinated telling stories uh, in a graveyard one time, and as far as the eye could see, there were pe there were gravestones, and there were people sitting on the on the graves. There was a gigantic sound system, the Cornell and Storytelling Festival, and there were maybe 10,000 people. It's one of the largest audiences. And in a graveyard? In the graveyard, telling people, we had to go early in the morning because people would come to this uh, ghost tale telling as part of that festival. They, they would start coming with their picnics early on. I don't think anybody had a problem sitting there. Wow. <laughs> but. There, there was a uh, an echo. I told I, I don't really have a lot of spooky stories that, that I know, but I decided that the uh, 
tale of a, a tale of the supernatural would work. So I told my version of Janet and Tamlin, and it echoed off of the hills on the far side of the graveyard mm. in Kentucky. So when the, the fairies, Tamlin is away, I could hear, is away, is away, is away, wow. is away. <laughs> Jeez, that must have been, oh, that must have been great to have heard that. <laughs> it was. Oh, that would have been really good. Is, is there a person that you've not met that you'd like to meet, a storyteller or performer, and, and talk with about the craft? Probably Ruth Sawyer, but she's passed. Yeah. So I'll have to wait. <laughs> you will. Hopefully a very long time. Well, I don't know. Or maybe if you're in a graveyard, maybe you'll bump into her there if you're telling stories. Maybe. But, you know, it, it, when, when a person gets to be... If, if a person is 70 yeah. and they're looking at, as an artist at time, it's a very different perspective than being an artist at 26 and looking at time. Yeah. There's a lot... It just feels like there's a lot more time to experiment and make mistakes and learn from the mistakes and the meanderings. And at this point, I have come to the understanding at 70 that I must make judicious choices about how I'm going to best use the time that I have to create the work that I want to make. Yeah. And I think that what I have come to is that we all have we all have gifts and skills, and it's best to use those gifts and those skills and not waste them. Right. And, and so I have an interest in traditional folkloric material, and so I'm, I'm not pulled to go tell my personal stories, of which I have many. Yeah. And at 70, anyone would have many because yeah. I've lived a long life. I've had many adventures. And as a storyteller, I'm happy to talk about it over tea. Yeah. But what is it that I want to make that I call my art? Right. That That is become more precious a question to me. And so how, how one, time as a commodity isn't really something we, that is tangible, but it's a metaphor that we use. We spend our time, we yeah. save our time, we waste our time, we donate our time. Um, but I want my time to be rich with stories. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much indeed for the interview. I really appreciate it. We do have to move out because we're in somebody's workshop room. Um, Heather, thanks so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, thank you. This interview was sadly cut very short. I misjudged how long we had and could have gone on for a lot longer. Thank you, Heather Forrest, for taking time out of the conference to have this conversation with me. Despite interruptions and the music of Papa Joe in the background towards the end, or maybe because of these things, we had a really good time, I felt. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversations as much as I did and learned as much about the art and the ways to look at it as I did. I hope at some time in the future I get to spend more time with Heather and get to ask her some more questions or elaborate on some things which piqued my curiosity. Thanks to Ben Schultz again for providing the music for the podcast. Creating this show is very much a labour of love. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this through my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation, if you like a particular episode, all help me reach out further and create more of these conversations. If you can, and I'm pretty sure you can, leave a review on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever else you found this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump onto the internet and find out more about my guests. Follow them and me. All of the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I sit down with them in the first place. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers. Hey, why not suggest a question for me to ask the next guest, who is... Well, I don't want to spoil the surprise. Until next time, shoot me an email and tell me your favourite folktale. Bye. Bye.
Thanks. Thanks.